Well, good morning, ladies. It is a privilege to be with you again. For those of you who don't know me, um, I'm uh, Teresa Whitfield. I've been a part of the Habits of the Heart leadership for three years, and this is my second time sharing before you. So my desire is to share some thoughts with you on the second Samuel, chapters one and two, and to give glory to God in the process. Today, we're going to take a deeper look into the death of Saul and Jonathan and how the news of their deaths affect uh, David. We will look deeper into David's lament and the practice and the benefit of lamenting. In chapter two, we will see how David is anointed king of Judah while Ishbosheth is made king of Israel. We'll see how David commends the people of Jabesh Gilead. We will also consider the battle of Gibeon and how running after the wrong thing can lead to disastrous consequences. Before we take a look at what's happening in the first two chapters of 2 Samuel, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are the author and perfecter of our faith, worthy of all our praise. Thank you for this opportunity to speak today. I pray that your spirit would lead me in my speaking. May we glean something new this morning, and may our hearts be forever changed to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Ladies, King Saul is dead. I know, not exactly breaking news. <laughs> we learned of his death last year. Last year, that makes it sound like it was such a long time ago, doesn't it? Actually, it was the last thing we studied before we went on our Christmas break. The death of Saul took place in a battle against the Philistines. While the Philistines caused his wounds, Saul was the one who took his own life. If you recall, Saul was badly wounded by the archers. Saul asked his armor bearer to draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. His armor bearer refused, so Saul fell upon his own sword. As we enter into 2 Samuel, we learn that David had just returned from striking down the Amalekites and returned to Ziklag, where he was for two days before he encountered a man on the third day. Verse 2 tells us, when the man came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. The man approached David with his clothes torn and had dirt on his head which is typically a sign of mourning. The man's appearance and actions probably piqued David's curiosity. David asked where the man had come from, and the man told him he had escaped from the camp of Israel. Well, surely David wanted to know the outcome of the battle, and the man had devastating news for David. Saul and his son Jonathan were dead. Now, before David responded to that news, he wanted to know exactly how this man knew such information. The man told David that he just happened to be on Mount Gilboa where the battle had taken place. He happened upon Saul, who was badly wounded. He said that Saul had asked him to kill him because anguish had seized Saul, yet his life still lingered. So he did as Saul requested and took the life of the king. The man, an Amalekite, then stripped Saul of his royalty and brought the crown and armlet to David as evidence. Okay, so wait a minute. 
We just remembered in the last chapter of 1 Samuel that Saul took his own life. Now we're reading that the Amalekite took the life of Saul. Whom should we believe? Let's look at the evidence. There are too many things that suggest the Amalekite isn't being honest with David. He just happened to be where the battle had taken place. Well, he either, either he was fighting in the battle or he was there to pilfer from the dead. He had the crown and armlet from Saul. I'm guessing it was the latter. In addition, the Malachite was a sojourner who lived among the people of Israel. He knew enough to know that no one should put out a hand against the Lord's anointed. More proof that the man was lying. We should always trust the narrator of the biblical story. Saul committed suicide. He wasn't killed by the Amalekite. The man knew that David would, would be king now that Saul was dead. He believed that by bringing him the crown and armlet and paying homage to him, David might somehow show him favor. But that didn't happen. What did happen immediately was that David and all the people grieved. They stopped in their tracks and grieved over the loss of their king and over David's friend, Jonathan. They tore their clothes and fasted until evening. At that point, David had some questions for the Amalekite. David wanted to know why this man dared to put out his hand against the Lord's anointed. Then David called for the man to be executed. David apparently believed the man's story. The Amalekite's actions constituted murder of the Lord's anointed, bringing the punishment of death upon himself. David's actions against the Amalekite shows that he, David, had no complicity in Saul's death. David resumes his grief. We are told he lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. So if you would, ladies, take your Bibles to second and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 19 to 27. If you'll follow along as I read. Verse 19, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death you were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant you have been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. So what does all this mean? All this, these, this lamentation kind of leaves you with some questions, doesn't it? 
Well, let's dig a little deeper into some parts of the prayer itself. First of all, why is David being so nice to Saul in his lamentation? Saul sought to kill David numerous times. Well, imagine for a moment if a president whom you don't personally like is assassinated. In that moment, you would feel shock and outrage, but you wouldn't bash the now deceased president. At least I hope you wouldn't. You'd show him honor where honor is due. This was not the time for David to linger on Saul's faults. This is where David proclaimed the virtues, proclaimed his virtues along with the more evident virtues of Jonathan. David kept his heart free from bitterness, even when he was greatly wronged and sinned against. And in that, David fulfilled 1 Corinthians 13.5, which says in part, love thinks no evil. So what is the book of Jashar? It's mentioned by David right before the lamentation. It is believed that the book was a collection of historic poems. The book of Jashar is also mentioned in Joshua 10.13. Now we shouldn't think that the book of Jashar is a missing book of the Bible. We can trust that our Bibles are complete and completely inspired. Gath and Ashkelon were two of the five major cities of the Philistines. And Gath, if you remember, is where Goliath was from. David didn't want the news of Saul and Jonathan's deaths to be announced in these places because he didn't want there to be great celebrations. In those days, when the men came back from war with victories, young girls would take their tambourines and go out and dance in the streets to celebrate and praise the men for these victories. David could see these celebrations in his mind, and he didn't want that to happen. So he prayed that the news would be kept from these major cities. David prayed that God would keep dew or rain from falling upon the mountains of Gilboa, which is the place where Saul and Jonathan died. He didn't want that place of death to be a place of beauty anymore. It had a new meaning to him now. I recently read in one commentary that if you go to Israel today and look at Mount Gilboa, you would see that it is completely barren and rocky. But all around it, the mountains are covered with lush trees and beautiful greenery. Some of you have probably been there and seen exactly that. Well, what David prayed for came to pass, and it is that way to this very day. Interesting, isn't it? So what does it mean when it says, For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. Shields were often covered with leather, which needed to be oiled. But the shield of Saul now lies in dust. But Saul, too, was anointed with oil as God's king to be a shield for the people. Now the shield which is Saul also lies in dust. Finally, David addressed his friend Jonathan. He felt the loss of his friend so deeply. The love that David mentioned in his lament was the love of a covenantal friendship. So now let's take a deeper look into lamentation itself. Lamentation is an organized meditation on grief. The theme of, the la of this lamentation is how the mighty have fallen. It is mentioned three times in David's lamentation. David laments, David's lament is the second poem in Samuel. The first, if you'll remember, was Hannah's song, which was composed in joy. 
Here we have a poem composed in grief. Did you know that more than one-third of the Psalms are laments? The Book of Lamentations weeps over the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus lamented in the final hours of his life. Lament is a form of prayer. It is more than just an expression of sorrow or venting of emotion. Lament talks to God about pain. It has a unique purpose, trust. Mark Rogup, a pastor here in Indianapolis, says, it is a divinely given invitation to pour out our fears, frustrations, and sorrows for the purpose of helping us to renew our confidence in God. He also says, to cry is human, to lament is Christian. Lament prayers take faith. Talking to God instead of getting sinfully angry or embittered requires biblical conviction. Christians lament because we know the long arc of God's plan, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Now, according to Vrogop, there are four components to lament. First, turn to God. In David's lament, he doesn't specifically address God directly, but the mere fact of his lament is his turning to God in trust. Second, bring your complaint. David brings his complaint to the Lord throughout the entire prayer, as we just read. Third, ask boldly. David asked specifically that God would not publish the news of Saul and Jonathan's death so that the Philistines wouldn't rejoice. He also asked God to let no rain or dew fall upon the mountains of Gilboa, the place where Saul and Jonathan fell. Choosing to trust is the fourth component. David trusts God in bringing his lament to him in the first place. David eulogized the courage of Saul and Jonathan in battle and their commitment to each other in life and in death. The point that I'm making here is that it is good to lament. It is right to lament. God wants to hear our lament and longs to comfort us in our anguish. He is a God of comfort and peace when it feels like there is no peace in the midst of our sorrow. God knows depth of sorrow even better than we do although sometimes it doesn't feel that way. I encourage you to consider writing out your own lament the next time you're faced with some news or an experience that has come upon you like a storm cloud ready to overtake you. He is ready to hear it. Now, let's move on to chapter 2. Upon hearing of the news of the deaths of Saul and Jonathan, and after a time of grieving, David inquired of the Lord, asking of him where he should go. The Lord told him to go up. But David wanted a few more details, so he inquired of the Lord again. God told David to take his family and his men to Hebron. Hebron was a city, is a city about 20 miles south of Jerusalem. It is a key location to the patriarchs and connected David to Abraham. David was fulfilling the promises made to Abraham. Through David, God's people will live in the land under God's blessing. Hebron is also significant because Abraham lived there and built an altar to the Lord. In addition, Abraham and Sarah are both buried there. And as a side note, I have mentioned several key locations to our story 
um, and they're shown on the map um, above with a legend um, showing where the places are. But your handout on the back shows that exact map, and hopefully it's a little bit easier to read than, than what we're seeing up here on the screen, and I hope you find that helpful. So the men of Judah appointed, anointed David as their king. They could have sought out a relative of Saul, but the people, knowing that the Lord had chosen David to be king, chose to follow him and anointed David as king. And as king, David sent messengers to the people of Jabesh-Gilead. He wanted to commend them for their kindness that they showed, in, showed Saul in retrieving his body, treating it with respect, and giving him a decent burial. David prayed that the Lord would show kindness to them as they had shown kindness to Saul. It was only fitting that the people of Jabesh-Gilead gave honor where honor was due concerning Saul. After all, he was the one who came to their rescue. Let's go back to 1 Samuel chapter 11 for just a quick moment and remember how Nahash, the Ammonite, wanted to gouge out the right eyes of the men of Jabesh-Gilead. This was in response to their request to a treaty. Do you remember that? For those of you who were here, I was the one talking to you about that last, last time. Yes, and so the men asked for seven days to consider Nahash's proposal, hoping they would find someone to rescue them from this terrible fate. When Saul heard of their plight, he came to their defense and struck down the Ammonites. For this, the men of Jabesh-Gilead showed Saul great respect in his death, and David showed them his appreciation. David's ascent to being crowned by the tribe of Judah wasn't controversy or messy free. Abner, Saul's army commander, made the decision to crown Ishbosheth as king over Israel. Ishbosheth was Saul's son who was not killed in battle. The name Ishbosheth means man of shame. Abner knew that David was God's anointed, but rejected him anyway until much later. In 2 Samuel 3, 17 to 18, it says, And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you have been seeking David as king over you. Now then, bring it about, for the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people, Israel, from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. David was God's anointed. Ishbosheth was Abner's anointed. So the result is a standoff between the armies of Abner and Joab, the commander of David's army. Abner suggested to Joab a contest of sorts, where 12 of Abner's men and 12 of Joab's men would face off against each other. It's not entirely clear why this battle took place. Whatever the reason, it turned deadly. All 24 men fell in a bizarre, almost synchronized act of simultaneous mutual stabbing. Perhaps this battle at the Pool of Gibeon was intended to be symbolic. Perhaps it was intended to, to determine the true and right Israel. Whatever the reason, the true Israel would not be determined by this battle. Instead, a brutal civil war is what followed. Joab's brother Asahel went after Abner. Asahel is described as being as swift of foot as a wild gazelle. The two ran and ran, Asahel chasing Abner. 
Abner tried to convince Asahel to stop pursuing him, but Asahel would hear none of it. Abner turned to him and said, turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? But Asahel refused to turn aside. Eventually, Abner simply stopped running. Asahel was running so fast that he never saw Abner's brake lights and slammed into the rear of him, causing the butt of Abner's spear to strike Asahel in the stomach. He had run so fast and stopped so hard that the butt of the spear actually came out the backside of Asahel. Have you ever run so hard after something that you were as swift as foot as a wild gazelle? Perhaps you were running after a career, or a husband, or children, or friends. I've been there. I moved from Washington, D.C. to Indianapolis to cover the auto racing industry as a print journalist after leaving the TV news industry. I was so convinced that this is what, what I was supposed to do. Yes, I had inquired of the Lord, and I do believe he brought me here. But I ran so hard after the idea of being a successful writer that I ran ahead of God and missed him entirely. I ran and ran and ran so hard and so fast, I wasn't sure that I was going to be able to stop or even to slow down. Eventually, I ran into a brick wall, and much like Asahel, and I crashed hard. Six failed book proposals later, I realized that I was running after the wrong thing. I was crushed. But while the fall left me reeling, I found what I should have been running after all along. Jesus. There's nothing wrong with the pursuit of career or husband or kids or any of those things. But before you run to those things, I want to encourage you and myself run to Jesus, run after him. We just celebrated the birth of the only son of God. We commemorated how he chose to come to this earth and be born in a lowly stable. At Easter, we will stop and consider how he took upon himself the sin of people like you and me, bore the wrath for that sin, suffered separation from God his father, and died a cruel death, all for the love of us. He loves you and me with a sacrificial love so deep that he died on the cross to save us from an eternity of separation from him. His love is unmatched by anything we could ever pursue on this earth. His love is worthy of our pursuit. He is waiting with arms wide open, ready to receive you. Would you consider running after him? Well, ultimately, Joab and Abishai pursued Abner after the death of Asahel. Abner eventually called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? This convicted Joab, who blew the trumpet, and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight any more. So what are you running after? 
Are you willing to risk the possibility of finding a bitter end to your pursuit? Take a page from David and inquire of the Lord before you start your pursuit. More than that, take a, word, take a, take a page from the word of God and remember that he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's from Titus 3.5. And then keep in lockstep with the Lord. Don't run ahead of him. Simply let the Lord guide your steps. God bless you.